Hey, and welcome to the Scottsdale Podcast. We are currently in a series that is centered upon God's design for the family. Enjoy the message. Welcome to Scottsdale Baptist Church. So glad all of you can be here. Those of you who are in line, we got a, in line, in person, we got a full house here today. So glad that you've joining us. Those of you who are online, we're glad that you're able to invite us into your home. It's a privilege for us to be there. And those of you in the Cross Point Center, so glad to have you as well. We're beginning a new series today on family. And let me just say happy Mother's Day to all of our moms here. So thankful for you. Let me give a shout out to my my wife, she's in Atlanta watching our grandbabies this morning. And so, Chris, happy Mother's Day. I'm not, you're not my mom, but you're my wife and uh, the mother of my children. And uh, I'm going to stop right there. Happy Mother's Day to you. <laughs> Look forward to you coming home. I miss you so much. So anyway, um, we're starting a new series today called Family. And if there's ever a time for us to really recalibrate our thinking and our passions about family, I think it's now. The culture that we're living in has been hard at work in dismantling and undermining the work of the family. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at what God's word has to say about family. Today, we're going to begin by looking at God's ideal for the family, how he designed it, how he structured it, and the ideal structure that he has created for us to have a life of joy and excitement and vitality. So today, we're going to be looking at God's design for the family. But next week, we're going to be looking at um, relationships within the family. We are going to have a marriage conference this weekend. I want to encourage you to come Friday evening, Saturday morning. It's going to be a wonderful time again to recalibrate coming out of COVID. We've learned all kinds of things about ourselves that we wish we didn't know. And now we're, we're, we're having to filter through all of those things. And I want to invite you to come and be a part of this marriage conference so God can use this to recalibrate our thoughts and our hearts and our minds. That's Friday night and Saturday morning. We're not going to go past lunch because it is a Saturday. Now, and then... Next Sunday, Herschel uh, York and his wife, Tanya, are going to be here, and they're going to be speaking to us about family dynamics next Sunday morning. Then the third week, we're going to look at raising children. We're going to see what God's Word says about parents raising children from infancy all the way to the past when they leave the home and even beyond. It's going to be an encouraging time for us as we talk about that. Then the last week, we're going to wrap it up by looking at something that every single family has to deal with, and that's conflicts. Every one of us has conflicts. So we want to look at, at the, the cause of conflicts, how to resolve conflicts in our relationships, and how that can be a blessing in the lives of our family and for those beyond. Now, as we begin this morning, I just want to let you know that we are going to be using God's word as the authoritative source of truth for us as we do in all things. What I'm going to share with you this morning is not something that comes from a social construct and that what people have come up with. It's not something that's going to flow out of some Western thought of this culture. It's not going to flow from cultural mores. It is going to flow from God's word. Because God's word is the standard for us and the filter by which everything in our life must pass through in order for us to enjoy the ideals that God has for his people. So as we begin, I just want to say this morning that families have all kinds of different makeups. There's some of you here who are married. There's some of you here who are married again. 
There's some of you here are single. Some of you are single again. Some of you are married with your own biological children. Some of you are married with a blended family. Some of you are, are grandparents and you're raising grandchildren. Some of you are maybe foster children and you're living in a home of people who have chosen to bring you into their family. Some of you may be adopted. Some of you may be widowed or widowers. You see, there's no one size fits all when it comes to family in our culture. And so we have a lot of different experiences when it comes to family, but there's some things that we all have in common. Let me give you three important statements about family that we all fit in this morning. Here's the first statement. You did not get to pick your family. You did not get to pick your family. You didn't have the option of saying, I want to be a part of that family or that family. You were born in the family you're in, adopted into the family that you're in. You didn't get to pick them. And if you notice that when we're growing up, a lot of times we wish we were in somebody else's family, don't we? And kids will say, oh, I wish they were my parents. They're cool. You know what? They eat ice cream instead of broccoli. They, 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 they don't have any parameters for rules and boundaries. There are no curfews. That's the family I want to be a part of. I heard one lady, she was having a difficult day with her children, and somebody asked her, ma'am, if you had to do it all over again, would you have children? She says, yes, I would, but not these. So, um, so we don't get to pick our families, right? And so we're born into the family that we have. We're all in the same boat. Second thing is this. Every family has certain dysfunctions. Have you noticed everybody's normal till you get to meet them? And then you see the different dysfunctions. I think of my family and my wife's family. When we were dating, I thought her family was so weird. She thought my family was so weird. We get married and we realize we're the only normal people. <laughs> Everybody else is weird. And so we have the normal family. Now my kids are married and they think we're weird because now they have the, several years ago, I did a, a wedding and it was a wedding, um, kind of, it was outdoor wedding. It had this huge covered gazebo. It really wasn't gazebo. It was a structure with big square openings for the windows all the way around. And there were no screens on them. It was just kind of open air. And when I was doing the wedding, I recognized there was a clear difference between the two families. On, on the bride's side, they were all dressed in business attire. I mean, they all looked really nice, and it was an outdoor wedding. Everybody knew how they needed to dress. On the other side, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, they were wearing cut-off shorts. I mean, really, really short cut-off shorts where the pockets were hanging over, and they were two sizes too small. I'm talking about the men. And it, it was so different. And there was one lady, she had a t-shirt that said Waffle House Princess on it. <laughs> and while I'm doing the wedding, on this side, I kept seeing this guy leaning over the opening. I thought he was sick. He was spitting his tobacco out all through the service. And then while I'm getting ready to introduce him as husband and wife, I hear, <laughs> I said, no. I mean, so we're different. There are dysfunctions in every family. Amen? Amen? Yeah. Thirdly, no one you are related to is as smart as you are. Have you noticed that? Yeah. <laughs> There's going to be an argument today on Mother's Day. No one's as smart as you are. This is a concept that if everybody would just listen to me, then family would be nice. I remember when I was 16 years old, I thought my dad was the dumbest man in the world. 
when I turned 21, I couldn't believe how much he learned in five years. <laughs> because we all think we know what's best. So we all come from different experiences. We come from different backgrounds. But there's one truth that is to guide us. There's one truth that is to help us to understand God's design for the family. This morning, here's what I want to do. I want to look at two things, and we're going to go through these pretty quickly, so you're going to have to hang on. I want to look at what God says about the design for family. He should know. He's the one who designed it. And his design has the final word. It doesn't matter what our culture says. It doesn't matter what our politics say. God has the final word as a designer of the family. And I want us to look at four things about God's design for the family. But then we're going to look at God's design for the members of the family and how God designed roles for each member of the family. And here's the kicker today. This is going to be the tension. This is going to be a tense message for all of us. Here's why. Because we're going to have to listen to what is the ideal and in the midst of it, we have to face what is real. The ideal and the real. And some of you this morning are going to be challenged, as I have been challenged. Some of you are coming with broken families. Some of you are coming with hurting families. Some of you are coming with conflicts. Some of you are coming as single moms, as single dads. And so how do we weigh all of this out between the ideal and the real? That's what we want to focus on today. So as we begin, I want us to look at Genesis chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, turn to Genesis 1.27. In Genesis 1, we have the summary of all of creation. In Genesis 2, we have more details about the creation. So we're going to be going Genesis 1 and 2 as we look at the design for the family. God's design for the family unit. And I have four simple points that I want to bring out. We're not going to debate on these very long. I just want you to see how God has designed it. Here's the first thing. God's design for the foundation of the family is a husband and a wife. God's design for the foundation of a family is the, a husband and a wife. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It's very clear. God says that it is to exist of a husband and a wife, a male and a female. And in that statement, God has laid out for us his desire for sexuality. This is not anything other than a heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman. One man, one woman. God did not create a whole group of men. He didn't create a whole group of women. And he didn't say, you figure out your sexual orientation. He never did that. Because his ideal is one man and one woman, period. Again, God has the final say on this. 
We're living in a culture today that this has to be something that we need to reorient ourselves in. We're living in a culture today that even if you teach this in some places like Finland, you can go to prison for it. And I believe a day is coming in our culture where this kind of language will be considered hate speech because it goes against the culture. But listen, I'm not concerned about what the culture says. And as people of God who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, we are to base our understanding of the family unit in God's word. The foundation is a man and a woman. Here's the second thing we learn. God's design for the function of the family is complementary. That is, we are to complement one another in our family units. Now, where most people will say, yes, yes, you preach it, Phil. One man, one woman. But they don't want to get into the issues of complementarianism, of how we are to complement one another in a relationship. There are two things about this that we need to understand. Again, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. How did he create every one of us? In his image. We are image bearers of the creator. And as image bearers of the creator, we have the responsibility of recognizing that every single human being has intrinsic worth and value. And because every single one of us is created in his image, Male and female, there was no gender dysphoria in the garden. There is just a binary choice, male and female. And they're created equal. There is no inferiority between genders. There's no inferiority between individuals. There's no inferiority between races. There's no inferiority between nations. And to hold one race as superior of another is offensive to God because every single one of us is created in his image. Intrinsic value and worth. And the same is true within the married relationship, within the family. You've got a husband and a wife and they both stand equally before God having been created in his image. But there's a second aspect of it. And many people miss this. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. It's the only negative in the creation account. God himself says it's not good. Everything else he said is good. It's good. It's good. Then when man was alone, he said, it is not good. And all men will agree with that. It is not good for us to be alone. We can't even dress ourselves. I took a picture of this and sent this to Chris in Atlanta this morning and said, can I wear this? <laughs> it is not good. But God makes a helper for him. The word helper is interesting. It means same but different. Same but different. We're created equally in the image of God. We are the same. But we are different biologically. And we are different with respect to responsibilities. None of those has to do with inferiority. It has to do with God's design that he has made us different so we complement one another. When God made Eve and she brought him to Adam, Adam named her woman. 
You know what that means in the Hebrew? Whoa, man. <laughs> That's good. I like that. I can compliment that until sin comes along, then he blames her. But then what we see here is this complementary nature. And when God creates a family, it is to be complementary. We are to complement one another. We are to fill each other's weaknesses with the other's strengths. We are to work together for the glory of God. And all that we do, the function is complementary. Here's the third thing that we see. God's design for the faithfulness of the family is permanence. It is permanence. That means one man, one woman, in a covenant relationship, complementing one another for life. That's the ideal that God has for the design. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is in a debate with some religious leaders. And they ask him the question about divorce. They had two thoughts on divorce there. One was liberal, one was more conservative. But they ask him about it. Jesus takes them back to the ideal. He takes them back to the garden. And here's what he says. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, it is a covenant relationship for life. When you go to a wedding ceremony, you often hear this, till death do us part, or as long as we both shall what? Live. We hear that all the time. That's a covenant relationship, not a contract. I was at a wedding one time, and a man said, as long as we both shall love. I thought, wow. That is a dangerous statement because it's all based upon my emotions and not my commitment to another person in a lifelong covenant. So here's what we see, those three things. We see the foundation, we see the function, we see the faithfulness, but this last one, most everyone misses. God's design for the framework of the family is the Trinity. Is the Trinity. Have you ever thought about that? It's really interesting that the family unit is to mimic the kind of relationship that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1.26a, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We see all through the pages of the Old Testament the fingerprints of a triune God. We see it there in the creation account. It says, God said, let there be light. The spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The word Elohim, which is for God, is plural, which speaks of the triune nature of God. When we get to the New Testament, it's more clearly defined, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But here's the point. The point is every single family, by God's design, should imitate the community that's in the Trinity. How does the Trinity live together? Let me give you three things that are in the Trinity that should be in our homes. Interdependency. Everyone in the Trinity is dependent upon the other. They're all dependent upon one another. One is not more omniscient than the other. One is not more omnipresent than the other. One is not more omnipotent than the other. They all depend and they each have their own function within the Trinity. We are to do the same. Secondly, relationality. There's a perfect community in the Trinity. 
There's never any bickering. There's never any arguing. There's never any fighting. There's an absolute unity within the Trinity of God. And the third thing is submission. This is something that's so interesting. Jesus submitted to the Father and came and took on human flesh and died for the sins of humanity. Jesus goes back and the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit submits to the Father and Son and he points to Jesus and Jesus points to the Father. There's perfect submission within the Trinity. And when God designs the family, not only is it one man and one woman, in a complementary relationship for life as they live together to glorify the very presence of God. That's it. That's the ideal. That's how God designed the family to be. Then you get to chapter 3, and what do you find? You find that Satan comes in. He deceives Eve. There's one tree they were told not to eat of, and they ate of that tree. Eve took it first. She bit, ate it, gave it to her husband who was with her. Remember, he was the one that had the command from God. He was the one who was to be the spiritual leader of the home and leading her along the way. And yet he was silent. And as a result of that, they were deceived and they sinned against God. The very first attack in the garden is attack on their relationship with God. But then that ends up being an attack on their own family. What happened? God holds Adam accountable. He comes to him, he said, what did you do? You know what he says? He says, that woman you gave me. I may have been alone, but at least I wasn't sinning until she comes along. He blamed God. He blamed God for the downfall of their marriage. And then what does she do? She blames Satan. Well, there is him. He deceived me. And on and on it goes. The complementary relationship was replaced by competition. The Trinitarian outlook of the family is now looks more like ungodliness. And ever since that time, the attack of the family has been happening. The ideal that God has laid out for us has now become an ordeal that we are struggling with and have been struggling with for 2,000 years, well, ever since the fall of man. And then Jesus comes along. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he brings everybody back to the ideal. Every time Jesus talks about marriage, he goes back to the ideal. Some people would say, well, Jesus never talked against homosexuality. When he took them back to the garden that God created a male and female, he created them. He went back to the original design of a heterosexual relationship for life. Jesus always goes back to the ideal. And when he comes, he begins to dismantle the construct that was created in their community. You see, in that day, when Jesus comes to taking on human flesh, it was a man's world. I mean, men ruled. Women were a little bit higher than cattle in their day. They were seen by men as just a little bit higher, maybe the top of men's possessions. Children were slaves. They did what they were told. And listen, children could be bought and sold. If they didn't like their kids, they can sell them off. 
So I know some of you are thinking, wow, I wish I lived back then. <laughs> but here's the reality. Jesus comes and he brings everybody back to the ideal. You know that when Jesus comes, he elevated the position of women in that culture? Think about all the women that Jesus spent time with. The woman at the well, who was a Samaritan. The woman caught in adultery. He demonstrates kindness. Mary and Martha, whom he was in their home. Jesus elevated the position of women in that culture. And Jesus elevated the position of children. Children were always coming to him, and they loved coming to him. I can just see Jesus laughing with them, playing with them, loving on them. Kids do not like grumpy old men. But they ran to Jesus, and he elevates them in that culture. Many of these women and these kids could not be citizens of their own country. But when Jesus goes to the cross, and he pays the price for humanity's sin, and he invites them into a relationship with him, they become citizens of the greatest kingdom, and they become joint heirs with the God who owns everything. He brings them back to center. And then when you get the apostle Paul, and you get to Ephesians chapter 5, the apostle Paul begins to lay out the design for family members. But here's what Paul does. He does something that blows the mind of the men in that culture. Remember, this was a man's culture. This was a man's world. Women had no rights. They had no privileges. They could be divorced even if they burned bread. Children were treated like slaves. And Paul comes on the scene and he takes them back to the ideal. In the midst of all this brokenness and this corruption, he brings them back to the ideal. And in Ephesians chapter 5, he gives some principles that were uncommon to thought in that day. Matter of fact, many of the men would have been very disturbed by what Paul said. But Paul is speaking, listen carefully, to the redeemed people of God. Those who have come into a relationship with Christ those whose lives have been transformed and through a redeemed relationship of Jesus Christ, then families can return to the ideal. When a man comes to faith in Christ, you can see the impact that that has on his entire family. When a woman comes to faith in Christ, you can see the impact she has on her family. When children come to faith in Christ, you can see the family can move back to the ideal that God desires. Right in the midst of all of it. So what does the Apostle Paul do? He gives three words. One word for each member of the family that you and I are to live by that brings us back to the ideal that God has. Let's begin with the men. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. He continues, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Here's the truth. God's design for the husband is to love his wife. Let me tell you, 
God chooses to give the more difficult thing for us men. You see, the easy thing for us is just simply to say this. I want to provide for my family. I'm okay with protecting my family, but you want me to love my family? Remember, in this Greco-Roman world, men never displayed their love for their wives openly and freely. And yet, Paul is saying, no, let's go back. Love your wife. This is your goal. The easy thing is to provide for them. The easy thing is to protect them. The difficult thing is to make yourself vulnerable in a leadership way where you love your wife seeking her highest good. He speaks of several things in this. Number one, he speaks of sacrifice. Do we have that? Sacrificial. It is to be a sacrificial kind of love. Men, that means that you sacrifice yourself for your wife as you're seeking her highest good. Let me tell you, leadership is always servant leadership. When a man has to say to his wife, you need to submit to me, that's a clear sign that he doesn't understand how to love her well. Because it's an issue of sacrificial love. Jesus gave himself up for the church. Men, we are to give ourselves up for our wives. Secondly, it's a selfless kind of love. It's a love where I put somebody before my needs and I elevate them above my own desires and my passions. And I want to elevate my wife. I want to meet her needs. I'm going to love her in a way that she needs to be loved. Now, man, there are two things you need to know about women. When we figure them out, I'll tell you. So, uh, <clears throat> but we need to have a selfless kind of love. Well, we love our wives in that way. Thirdly, it is a sanctifying love. Men, you're the spiritual leader of your home. The ideal for God, from God, is that you would love your wife in such a way that you model the heart of Christ before them. Listen to this. You prepare your wife for eternity. Have you ever thought of that? I'm to prepare my wife for eternity? That doesn't mean to say, honey, today you're meeting Jesus. That's not what that is. <laughs> You prepare your wife for Jesus. Here's the last one. You love her with sensitivity. You're sensitive as you love your own self. We are to be sensitive with our wives. And that means that we are to pay attention to their needs and their passions and their desires. And as we love this way, that, that, that enables them to see the very character of a redeemed life in Christ. Man, when's the last time you opened the door for your wife? When's the last time you, and I'm not talking about this keyless entry. Hold on. I'll get it for you, honey. There you go. Sensitive. When's the last time? And these make it really hard, by the way. When's the last time you've just said, no, no, honey, I get that. Honey, you never have to open a door again. Honey, you never have to pump gas. Well, maybe, maybe not always, but, you know, but being sensitive Man, that's going back to the ideal because in that you are accomplishing all the things that God has for the family. Ladies, it's your turn. <clears throat> Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And he is himself savior. I'm talking about Jesus, not the husband. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything 
with their husbands. Ladies, God's design for the wife is to submit to her husband. Now, in our culture, that's hard. In that culture, it was easy and no choice. But what Paul says is to submit to your husband as to the Lord. That was the difference. You submit to your husband to please Christ. You submit to your husband as you have this complementary relationship between a husband and a wife. And, and that, that submission is very significant because number one, it's volitional. You volunteer to take the lowly position. Many times we see that's the superior position. That's you ducking so God can hit your husband upside the head. Okay? But you submit. It's a volitional way. Secondly, it's a relational way. As you build that relationship, you challenge him. My wife loves to challenge me, and I don't always like it. But I understand that as we complement one another, there's various roles that we have within the marriage. And the third thing, it's unconditional. What do I mean by that? I mean whether he's a believer or not. Whether he's a believer or not. It's not unconditional in the sense that if he asks you to do something that violates God's word or your conscience, you're not free to do that. You're never free to do that. But it's unconditional in the sense of even if he's not a believer, or how about this, even if I know he's wrong? That's the hardest time to submit is when you think you're right and he's wrong. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, it goes to the next one. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now he gives a role for children. He gives a role for children. Children, God's design for the children is to obey their parents. Again, in that culture, they had to obey. They had no choice. But you do it as unto the Lord because it's pleasing to him. Listen, kids, those of you who are believers, God expects you to obey your parents. It doesn't matter where your parents are believers or not. God has given them to you and you are to obey them and honor them. It doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're five, whether you're 15, whether you're 25 and living at home or 50 and living at home. <clears throat> you are under their roof. I used to tell my kids, I just want to remind you something. That's my bed you're sleeping in. That's my water you're using. That's my electricity I'm paying for. But it comes an issue of obedience. Now, that's the ideal. That's the ideal. It's very simple, isn't it? So if we go back and look at the ideal, God's design for the family, the foundation for the family is a husband and a wife. The function is complementary. The faithfulness is permanence. The framework is the Trinity. The word for, let's go to the next slide. God's design for members, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. That's the ideal. Here's the problem. There's a difference between the ideal and the real, isn't there? Some of you have already checked out of this sermon long time ago because you are not living by the ideal. You're experiencing the real. 
And for some of you, the gap between the ideal and the real is so broad, you wonder, can you ever make that up? Some of you may feel like this statement. This may be the ideal, but I'm in an ordeal and I need a new deal. Here's a new deal. It hasn't changed since the beginning. The danger is this. When we feel that we're not reaching the ideal, we settle for the real. And the real becomes the normal. And you never move to what God wants. And most of the marriages in our churches today are what I would just simply say, marriages that are existing. There's no ideal there. They're living in the real. Things are broken. Things seem like to be no hope. Where do we go with this? Let me remind you about Jesus. Jesus always pointed to the ideal. He always did. Jesus always raised the bar in relationships. He always did. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus said, You have heard it said, but I say to you, You have heard it said that you shall not murder, but I say to you, any man who has anger in his heart towards a brother has murdered him. And in verse 27 of the same chapter, he says, You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, if any man lusts after a woman in his heart, he has committed adultery with her in his heart. He always raised the bar. And by those two statements, every man in that crowd were murderers and adulterers. But Jesus didn't condemn them. It's not what he did to them. It's what he did for them. He died for them. Believers, Jesus died so your marriage would encounter the ideal. He died that your marriage can be everything he wants it to be. He died because there's nothing you can do in your own strength, but it was what he does for you. And listen, men, every redeemed man here today, the ideal is for you to love your wife in such a way that you would die for her. That you would lead your wife in such a way that you would serve her. I read an interesting statistic this week. No man has ever been killed by his wife while doing the dishes. Maybe afterwards, but but you are to love your wife. Men, you may have missed the ideal, but you can begin today as godly men saying, I want to love her. I want to serve her. I want to be the spiritual leader of our home as we complement one another in this loving relationship. Ladies, some of you might be saying, I've missed it. I've missed it. Submission is hard. The two reasons submission is hard. Number one is because of the culture that tells you you're inferior if you do that. And secondly, because of the curse. In the garden, we see that part of the curse, it says that you desire shall be for your husband. In the Hebrew, it literally says to be over him. And you're always having to fight the curse. 
And you may say, I've missed it. But God is calling you as a redeemed woman of God today to come alongside your husband and support him and encourage him and submit to his loving leadership. That's the ideal. And children, God is calling you to obey your parents. You must first trust that God has put you in that situation and God is using them to point you into the very directions that he wants you to go. God will never work outside of his divine plan for the family by you getting around the obedience of your parents. He never will. Obey them. And as we walk together in this, what we end up doing is we're going back to the ideal. Men, redeemed men of God, would you today say, I'm going to love my wife. I've not been very good at it, but I'm going to be a student of my wife and I'm going to love her the way Jesus wants me to. Ladies, I'm going to support and submit to my husband and encourage him in his spiritual leadership. Kids, I'm going to say yes ma'am and no ma'am, yes sir and no sir, and submit to my parents. Why is it the ideal? Because within God's frame of that structure, there's freedom. Within the frame of that structure, there's joy. Within the frame of that structure, there's life. And you might say, why do we need to do the ideal? Let me ask you this. We want the ideal for our family. I've never, ever met a divorced couple who have said, I hope my children end up divorced. I've never met a single woman who said, I hope my daughter ends up a single mom. I've never met a man who's living in a lonely relationship of marriage saying, I hope one day my son grows up to be as miserable as I am. You'll never hear a mother say, I hope that my daughter is married to a workaholic and is neglected the way I have been. Why? Because we all want the ideal. And the ideal is found in God's word through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's what I've come to know. The family's like a wagon wheel. All the spokes are members of the family. The hub is Jesus. And we begin outside on the edges of those spokes. But the more and more we fall in love with Jesus, the closer and closer we come together. And it begins with Christ. So here's what my challenge is to this body. Men love. Women submit. Children obey as you model the picture of the Trinity, as you walk in a complementary relationship with one another in a covenant for life. Now, what do you do if you're a single mom? What do you do at this point? Your husband has walked away. You're parenting your children. We have a great message for parenting in two weeks. But for right now, don't give up on the ideal. 
You walk in God's forgiveness. You walk in God's grace. You walk in God's providence and you watch and you wait and you see what he does in your life. And if he does in the future, bring someone in. You make certain that you're pursuing the ideal in every bit of it. If you're single and you've never been married, pursue the ideal of what God wants you to be in that relationship. That you will be everything God desires you to be in grace and in truth. I've got to stop talking because I'm about to lose my voice and I got one more service. I was going to have Donnie come out and sing, but we're late, so I just want to pray for us. Father, thank you for your plan for the family. And Father, while we are living in a culture that wants to dismantle it, it has been that way from the beginning. There may be some new verbiages for the challenges, but the challenges are still there. And Father, may we never settle in for the real. But Father, we always pursue your ideal. That you would be honored. That you would be glorified. In Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If this message blessed you and you now have a desire to follow Jesus, I encourage you to go to scottshill.org slash next steps so that we can follow up with you. Also, if you like the message, feel free to share it on social media with your friends and family. God bless.